Welcome to Hidden Kitchens, Texas, an hour of stories about the world of secret, unexpected, below-the-radar community cooking across the Lone Star State. Produced by the Kitchen Sisters with KUT in Austin and NPR, I'm your host, Willie Nelson. These stories come from Texas, where I grew up and where I still live. They're about ice houses and truck stops, chili queens and oil barrel barbecues, about biodiesel made from restaurant grease and farm crops, about the birth of the Frito, the birth of the Slurpee, the birth of the frozen margarita, Texas stories of land, family, and place. Message 7 was received at 2.10 a.m. Saturday. This is Brian Gooding. It's a gas station in Dallas, Texas called Fuel City. It's located down on the levee just outside of downtown Dallas. They used to have buffalo there, and they have cows that are grazing right there on the levee within sight of downtown. There's a little bitty uh, window in the side of the service station, and they have a taqueria in there. They cook them all night, Texas tacos. Thank you. I'm Robin Wright Penn, and I was born in Dallas, the home of Fuel City. If Hugh Hefner owned a gas station, it might look a little like this. I'm John Benda, Fuel City, downtown Dallas. I'm in the business of selling gas and beer, so I thought it would be neat to uh, have an attraction and have a station too. Just wanted to show you know, what Dallas looked like 100 years ago. We've got uh, 10 acres. Oh, I put in uh, longhorns went around the country and got the biggest longhorns in the world, you can walk right up to them. The older they are, the bigger the horns. And this one over here looks like he's dead, but he's this nappy. Part of the Texas theme, I put a, a oil well there, and then I put in a swimming pool over here. And I've got uh, waterfalls shooting up, have girls sitting out by the pool, as you can see. They're pool models. They just lay at the pool and wave with the customers. And from the interstate, you can see people drive by and they can see the girls at the pool. It's probably more of an attraction than having the animals out in back, the, the longhorn. 28 cars and trucks can fill up at one time. Truckers come by 24-7 uh, and they can eat and they can go park their truck and, and stay for the night. She's just got this little bitty ice chest. She's selling hot tamales to these people coming by. Margarita. Pretty busy all day. The gas, the beer, we have people who sell corn, put sour cream, chili, lemon, and mayonnaise. My name is Norma Dominguez. Right, it's around 4 o'clock. There's a lot of business. Fridays and Saturday nights, I have a DJ outside, and he's jamming and playing music. Uh, kind of a place to be seen. Did you ever see Dallas from a DC night at night? Well, Dallas is a jewel, oh yeah, Dallas is a beautiful sight. And Dallas is a jungle, but Dallas gives a I'm Robin Wright Penn. I was born in Dallas-Fort Worth Airport Hospital. My mother took us everywhere with her. She worked for um, Mary Kay Cosmetics. My grandfather raised Charlotte cows, so he was way out in Venus, Texas. And everybody would come back to the farm, the big summer reunion. You would do hot water cornbread, hush puppies, fried okra. You'd do chicken fried steak with that. My grandmother was the cook. 
your whole day was prepping for lunch and then dinner. And most of that meal was starch. And then all the aunts and uncles would come to have lunch on a Saturday. And I remember my grandmother saying, okay, let's just go down the list. Do we have everything? All right, we've got the goulash, we've got the hush puppies, we've got the red beans and rice. You have 87 new messages. of wonder bread just sitting on a plate. Hundreds of people from every part of Texas called in about the hidden kitchen traditions in their lives. Stories of how we tend and feed our communities. Message received at 7.50 a.m. My name is Martha Cook Ward, and we're in Austin, Texas. Green Pastures was my family home and restaurant that my parents started in the late 40s, right around the time I was born, the eighth of eight children. My mother had a reputation for giving fabulous parties and for having a lot of children. So the combination led to the necessity for ponying up. And people said, well, Mary, you love to give parties, why don't you do it as a business? So that's how it started. My parents had supper clubs. My mother, she was very good friends with Lady Bird. Uh, Lyndon started out in local politics and was here in Austin. So they would come to these supper club events with other people of that social class because that's just what people did back then. Kind of the gentry of Austin. The wait staff at that time was what we referred to as behind the chair service. So it was a very... Um, it's old traditional South service, and almost all of our wait staff were professors at the Black University on the east side of town, Houston Tillotson. My grandfather, Henry Falk, was a lawyer. People would come to him and say, "Well, you know, Judge Falk, I want a divorce, or I wanted some kind of civil suit." And he'd say, well, you know, you just need to come out to the house for a few days and we'll talk about it. He says, I've got some really mighty fine buttermilk out there and some good cornbread, and we'll just talk. And that's how he handled his legal practice. <laughs> There's a uh, psalm, let me lie down in green pastures, and I mean, that's the ultimate resting place. The Ice Houses of Texas. Hey, Grandpa. Are you there? How you doing? Oh, pretty good. Hey, I got a question for you. Remember that ice house you used to go to and Pop used to go to? I think it's still there, isn't it? Oh, yeah, 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 down West Avenue. Oh, I'm doing fine. Yeah, I'm at work. Hey, I got to run, Grandpa. I got cars coming in. All right, we'll see you later. Love you. Hey, there's an ice house over on West Avenue. And he said, everybody there is 150 years old. I'm off tomorrow. If you want me to take you over there, I can. I'm Michael Ulrich, the doorman at La Mansion del Rio Hotel, San Antonio, Texas. An ice house is easy to spot. You look for horseshoe pits outside. You look for domino tables that are worn slick. You can spot an ice house by the sawdust. Even though they don't store blocks of ice and sawdust anymore, you can still see the sawdust evident on the tables, on the dance floor. Are the boards warped from having a thousand beers spilled on them over the last hundred years? They're just clues. They're smells. What's the parking lot made out of? Crushed shell in southeast Texas? Crushed limestone in the hill country? If there are not 47 billion bottle caps that have been run over by 47 and a half billion pickup trucks, then you're in the wrong place. That's the ice house right there. That's it, the Texan. Garage doors are open, no AC, you're just sweating in your beard, it's so hot. 
It's a train bill. Every time the train passes, you get a beer for $1.25. The ice house started off being where cut ice was stored. We didn't have refrigeration. My name is Rhett Rushing, Institute of Texan Cultures here in San Antonio. Beforehand, getting ice was almost unheard of. All ice was harvested from northern lakes, Wisconsin, Minnesota, you know, wherever you had thick ice. And it was a major industry. You'd go out and you'd saw up the ice into cubes or rectangular blocks, packed in sawdust, and they would load it on the ship to haul it as far south as they could. Sometimes they even made it to Galveston before it was gone. The old ice houses, they were the first ones to serve beer iced down. My name is John Chabelli, Yellow Trucker Cab in San Antonio, Texas. Sancho's is a hidden place. It's underneath the bridge, underneath the freeway. Uh, if you drive by, you will not see it. You have to know where it's at. It gets packed at night. The whole lot is filled with cars. I mean, Sanchez is a place to be. I mean, it's an old, old hole-in-the-wall place and everything, but you, 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 you have your lawyers, judges. Oh, man. I mean, famous people come here, you know? In the 1860s, there were three ice manufacturing plants in San Antonio. There were only five others in the entire U.S., my name is Randy Mallory. I'm a journalist in East Texas. German immigration came into Texas in the 1840s. Needed beer. Germans and Czechs, a lot of the little communities would have their own little breweries, and therefore you have to have that ice. Growing up, my parents used to go to an ice house when we were very, very little, they would bring the family. They'd buy the little kids the soda and potato chips and everything to keep them entertained while they were out there dancing and having a nice time and enjoying the music. My name is Ronnie Gomez, and they call me Ronnie G. It's the back patio. We used to play uh, horseshoes right here when the old timers were still alive. See, that's the old domino table. Look, see, look. It's old. It's old as dirt. The conjunto style of music came from the ice houses that were up and down St. Mary Street, south of the quarries, where the Germans and the Mexican stonemasons got together in the evenings. You've got accordions, German rhythms, and their Spanish lyrics. I'm Ron Zimmerman, filmmaker and resident of San Antonio. Well, it doesn't get any better than this. Can you feel it under the trees? Nice little breeze, 100 degree day, having some beers with your comrades here. We're town setters. We grew up together, yeah. work together, cry together. San Antonio's ice houses, they're like London's pubs or Paris street cafes or Vienna's coffee houses or Munich's beer halls. They're people's public living rooms. Seven days a week, we open up at seven. And seven days a week, we're open till 11. From seven. Till 11. From seven. Till 11. That's why we sing. 7-Eleven's got everything. In the early 1900s, people didn't have electrical refrigeration in their homes. They had ice boxes, put blocks of ice in it, 
And the ice plants built ice stations scattered all over neighborhoods and became neighborhood hangouts. In the 20s in Dallas, Southland Ice Company ice stations and the one in Oak Cliff decided why not sell a few other items, eggs, milk, right from the ice dock and people liked that convenience, the longer hours, Southland Ice decided to expand it. Initially they were called totems. Someone had brought a totem pole from Alaska and put it out in front of one of these stores. At one point they came up with the idea of 7-11, 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. and that's the name that stuck. The birth of the 7-Eleven. We're in our 79th year. <laughs> I'm Cynthia Baker, communications manager for 7-Eleven Incorporated, Dallas, Texas. And this company has just a history of innovation. All of the things that have come out of 7-Eleven, the Slurpee, the Big Gulp, Coffee to Go. 7-Eleven has become the largest convenience store operation in the world. Over 30,000 stores globally. We want employees to understand that we began as a small ice house right in Dallas. We still offer ice because that's convenient. So you have so many parties and picnics and barbecues and you gotta have that ice. Don't forget the bag of ice. The birth of the Slurpee. Slurpee was uh, developed in 1966 in Dallas. It's a semi-frozen beverage. We kind of got the idea from this person who was making these little drinks figured out how to mass produce it, and it has really taken off. Our Slurpee just has a life of its own. It really does. The birth of the frozen margarita. It's been much greater than anything I could have ever dreamed about. I had no idea it'd end up in the Smithsonian. It's got a big sign on it, world's first frozen margarita machine. The day they took it out, I purposely was not at the restaurant. Couldn't bear to see it go out the building. Mariano Martinez. We're in Dallas, Texas. Fourth generation in my family to be in the restaurant business in the late 50s. People would walk into my father's restaurant with a bottle of tequila someone had given them from Mexico. They'd go, what do I do with it? They didn't know how you drank tequila. And my father would make margaritas in a blender. The next thing you know, the bottle would be empty, everybody would be having a great time. I knew there was something magic in the drinks. In 1971, I opened my first restaurant, Mariano's Mexican Restaurant and Cantina. I knew there was magic in my father's margarita, and so I went to him and asked him for a secret recipe, which he never shared with anyone. And I thought, okay, now I've got the winning combination. This restaurant's going to be a big success. First week I was in business, customers would stop me to complain about the margaritas. They weren't good, they were inconsistent, and they weren't cold. And we were trying to make them the way my dad used to make them for one party of four at a time. They just couldn't keep up. I spent a sleepless night. I saw my dreams evaporating. The next morning, I stopped at a 7-Eleven store, and I saw a Slurpee machine sitting there. The light bulb went off in my head. I picked up the telephone. I called the South Incorporation, the owner of the 7-Eleven stores. They were very guarded, wouldn't share with me where to buy a Slurpee machine. So I ended up buying a soft-serve ice cream maker. We souped it up like you would a car. That was unique. We come to Mariano's, we get a babysitter, we go into the cantina, we eat nachos, have margaritas, and the music and the margaritas would take hold of them, and they were dancing in between the tables, and next thing you know, all these Anglos are over there dancing like Mexicans. <laughs> I mean, it was almost like I threw a party that lasted for 20 years. Tequila! 
the birth of the Frito. He was consumed by Fritos. He worked incessantly at home, on vacation, on weekends. He loved it. He experimented in the kitchen at home. We were his guinea pigs. I'm Kalita Doolin. I grew up here in Dallas, and I'm the daughter of Charles Elmer Doolin, the founder of the Frito Company. He had a bakery in San Antonio, a confectionery. He wanted to have chips on the counter. Tortillas staled too easily. So he found a chip in a gas station, an extruded chip, and he bought the recipe, the patent, and 14 customers from a man who was from Mexico who lived in San Antonio. It was 1932. He uh, began the manufacturing with his mother and brother in the kitchen, and they were making them by hand using a potato ricer with a slot instead of the little round holes, bagging them and selling them by day to gas stations. It's a masa fried in a corn oil, salted, and he hybridized the corn. Part of the secret ingredients of Frito is that it's his own corn. He had lots of hidden kitchens. He had the kitchen off to the side of his office. He had the kitchen at home. He had factories. His life was one big kitchen. I'm Alan Governor, and I'm Kalita's husband. And on the counter, he had a line of Bunsen burners with little tripods with metal trays on top of them. He'd call the employees into his office, lead them into the kitchen, and have them taste the different flavoring for the chips. Dad named it Fritos. It means fried thing. That's what they are in Mexico, is they're Fritos, beach food. And he also invented the Cheetos. Well, I never brought Fritos to school. We didn't have them at home that much, and when we did, Dad brought them off the conveyor belt with no salt on them. Dad was into health food. We always went to the Natural Food Association meetings, and he was a follower of Dr. Shelton in San Antonio, who had a clinic for fasting. Dad was vegetarian. He had a bad heart and bad lungs and weight problems, and he was looking for alternative cures. We were raised vegetarian, and people made fun of me for eating yogurt and figs in my sack lunch. Mom would use Fritos in cooking, making up recipes. Fritoki pie was one of her inventions. Recipes were printed on the back of the bag. One of the most strange ones is called Jets. Melted dark chocolate with Fritos dropped onto a cookie sheet to solidify. And then you just crunch them up, fat on top of fat. Kitchen Sisters, KUT in Austin, and NPR, Hidden Kitchens, Texas. I'm Willie Nelson. 
I started picking cotton alongside my grandmother when I was maybe five, six years old. And uh, I would have a little bitty cotton sack that she would make for me where I and make me some knee pads where I could crawl along beside her. And I learned a lot about how hard work farming is. I grew up kind of a halfway farmer, rancher, whatever. In Abbott, Texas, which is about 300 or so population, there was a lot of black farm workers. There was a lot of Mexican farm workers. A lot of guys like me, little white boys, trying to go to school, make a living. And uh, we all came together in the farm out there working. Hear the, the blues coming from over here, and then the Mexican music coming from over here, and then some Bob Wills or something coming over there. It was uh, like living in a big opera. After the Civil War, there weren't slaves picking cotton anymore. This army of cotton pickers would descend on Texas. As many as 400,000 cotton pickers would move in a swarm, starting in the lower Rio Grande Valley and moving north as the cotton ripened, mostly from Mexico, a lot of them black. During the Depression, some of them poor whites, Okies as they called them. When they got to German towns like Lockhart and Elgin, the number of cotton pickers was equal to the population of the entire town. They weren't welcome in restaurants, so where were they gonna eat? And in the German towns, they went to the meat market. Well, the cotton pickers walking into a German meat market saw the smoked meat and said, hey, barbecue. (laughs) And they supplemented that meal with crackers, pickles, onions, They'd go sit on the steps, eat the stuff on the spot. They don't put it on a plate and give you a fork, just put it on a piece of paper. And we think of this as some kind of German tradition, but the truth is, without the cotton pickers, there wouldn't have ever been the demand for this mass production of smoked meat. I'm Rob Walsh, food critic for the Houston Press, and I write cookbooks about Texas. Hey, my name is Todd Moy. I'm a history professor and oral historian at the University of North Texas in Denton. I hope you will look into the Shakespearean tragedy of Cripes Market and Smitty's Barbecue and Lockhart. Um, When Smitty, who had run Cripes Barbecue, died in the 1990s, he left the business of Cripes Barbecue Restaurant to his son and the building to his daughter, and um, they could not come to an agreement, business terms. So the daughter kicked the son out, and he opened his own barbecue restaurant down the road on Highway 183 and opened her own barbecue restaurant, Smitty's, in the former location of Kreitz, two of the best barbecue restaurants in in Texas, but also a very, very sad um, family story. My name is Joe Nick Petoskey, and uh, I've been writing about Texas for the last 35 years. The way we cook goes back to this idea of digging a hole in the ground, which is uh, really our connection to the ancients. Our Texas kitchens are not so much hidden, but out in the open. That usually means a picnic table and at the very least a cut-in-half 40-gallon barrel, maybe on stilts, maybe not, or even digging holes in the ground. That's something that all the heritage ethnic groups of Texas, Mexican-American, African-American, and Anglo-American, have shared that trait of doing that when they cook their meats. 
We do it outdoors mainly because of the heat. I'm going down to Austin, Texas. I'm going down to save my soul. Get that barbecue and chili. Eat my fill and come back home. I'm going to take my baby with me. We're going to have a high old time. We're going to eat till we get silly. Sure do make a bit taste fine. Whoa, my mama ain't that Texas cooking something. Whoa, my mama ain't that Texas cooking good. My name's Buck Rain, Chuck Wagon Cook. I'm baking some sourdough biscuits just coming off and some peach cobbler, finishing up some beef tips and rice, what they would have had on the trail 130 years ago. The cattle drives all started back in the 1860s and they would catch wild cattle down in South Texas, take them to the railheads up north, 1,500, 2,000, 3,000 steers, bring them up to market. And that's where the chuck wagon originated. Colonel Charles Goodnight put together an old army ambulance put a, a box on the back where they got the name Chug Box and that's where they started feeding the crews. I cooked on a lot of ranches, did roundups. On a cattle drive, the wagon I have is a 1906 John Deere that's been converted over to a chuck wagon. Whenever we butcher, take all of the organs from brains to tongue to sweetbreads, liver, kidney, testicles, chop it up and it's called son of a bitch stew. We like it a lot. And then we'll dig a hole in the ground and burn down a bunch of wood, and that's, we use the coals on Dutch ovens. A Dutch oven is a cast iron vessel. You use that mainly for your baking. Back in the 1800s on the trail, you didn't have access to butter and milk and eggs, so the starter was the leavening agent. We've got a starter that we've kept alive for a lot of years. Got fried okra, beat anything I ever saw. I know a woman cook carrito, it must be against the law. We gon' get big old sausage, big old plate of ranch style beans. I could eat the heart of Texas, we all need some brand new jeans. Whoa. I'm Terry from Fresno, Texas. I drive 18 wheelers and rodeo on the side. Mm, a long line of cowboys. My daddy, grandpa, all of them just was cowboys and rodeo and stuff. I'm bringing my sons and them up and doing the same thing. Tomorrow we had a big parade downtown and then the livestock show and rodeo started. Come on out to the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. All that money goes to The Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo uh, goes back to the 1930s. 1952, one of the officials of the rodeo, he decided that he was going to ride his horse to the rodeo, 50, 60 miles. And I guess he wanted to sort of bring it back to the roots. So the word got out. All along their route, people came out of their houses and stood along the way to wave to him. There are now 13 trail ride associations. Several of them are African-American, several of them are Hispanic. The longest distance, the Vaquero trail ride comes up from, uh, from the Mexican border. This is the matriarch of our club here. This is Miss Ozella. And how old are you, Miss Ozella? You don't want them telling me. No, Tell no, them, baby, no, you looking no. good. They, you no. look proud of that age. What is your age? Your I'm 75 years old. She's still right. I feel real good. Doing good. We ride with Southwestern Trail Riders. We're wagon 12 out of 25 other wagons that ride with us. Camp out at night, cookouts, music, dancing. I'm trying to get in that park so we can fry some chicken. <laughs> My name is Mira Allen from Houston, Texas. Circle 44. Riding club. I'm the cook. 
Oh. Well, I made boudin balls out there. And I fixed the rice up, balled it up, and deep fried it in peanut oil. Fried chicken, fried fish, smother yeah. down some pork. Now I make and sell tamales and praline candy, pecan and walnut. That's why I'm getting a stable place because everybody asks, well, where do you be? God gave me that ministry of food. I know that's my calling, you know, because it's not all about money. It's about love. You hear me? So that's why we're out here spreading love. A Christian cowboy kitchen. This would probably be the ultimate hidden kitchen. Limited access. You have to be a part of the rodeo or you have to be uh, sneaking in to get here. My name is Charlene Matlock. I've been a member of the Fellowship of Christian Cowboys about 10 years. We're down here cooking, serving the cowboys. Tonight we had chicken and dumplings, squash casserole. Diddy's Pie Shop donated homemade cherry cobbler, peach cobbler. Some of them make a lot of money, some of them don't. So we prepare them a hot meal and have a church service on Sundays for them. I bet you we've served over 250 people in here tonight. No fast food. We try to keep them heart healthy for the road. Thursday night we're going to be observing um, breast cancer awareness. The pink shirts on the Cowboys, everybody's going to wear pink on Thursday. Cowboy heaven, we're in the hospitality tent. I'm Daryl Diefenbach. I'm a bullfighter. It's my job to protect the bull riders as I move in there and distract the bull, give that guy a chance to get away. I just love saving cowboys. If you can imagine the feeling I get when I position myself between a bull and a bull rider and that bull throws me in the air, gets me down, runs over me, and that bull rider, he gets up and gets away and doesn't even get touched. It's To me, it's the ultimate, you know what I mean? Pretty tough when we're on the road all year. If we can save a few dollars just by having a meal, it, it sure helps. Got married on a barbecue pit at the rodeo cook-off. It's the first one ever been done out there. Wayne Whitsworth founded Pits and Spits in, in Houston, Texas. Wayne Whitsworth was an oil field contractor. He, you know, he was a welder. He, he did all kinds of repairs in the oil field. Exxon today started out four miles down the road, right there in Humble, Texas. The biggest oil strike ever hit Texas or anywhere. Houston was hell dependent on oil. All kind of people back then. It's, it was wildcatters is what it was. No company just gets out there and digs holes and hope he hits. People working with oil fields started building the barbecue pits. And uh, most of the time they'd take a piece of old oil field casing and a old pipe, cut some holes in it, weld some ends of it, and, and start cooking on it. And a lot of them used to make them out of 55-gallon drums. But I used to tell everybody, they don't put nothing in barrels that's good for you. That was one of our main selling points. All new materials, no barrels. And the reason we started the barbecue pits was when everything went to hell here in Houston over the oil, I had about 40 people working down there, didn't have anything for them to do. So, well, people had tried to get us to build them before, but I said, nobody would pay the price that they would. Pits and spits. We were one of the first ones that really got with the program. There wasn't that many people around the country building these things like we were to sell, you know, like these outdoor kitchens are so popular, we pretty well started all that. But now they're everywhere, all over TV and everything. Kind of like the World Poker Tour. You have 48 new messages. Message 1 was received at 11.40 a.m. Friday. Hi, this is Pat Johnson in Fayette County, Texas. I live in a rural 
communities of old Czechs and Germans. And so I've made some wonderful little granny friends over the years. And one of my favorites is Leanda Slobach. And Leanda's in her 80s, got this old Czech-German dialect. She's about five feet tall. She's one of these women whose breasts start at her waist. And her hands are incredible from working in the garden a million years. And She's cooked at the feast here in in Round Top since she was a young girl, and so her stories are really good, you know, hog slaughtering and making sausage and kolaches and all those things that are being lost now here in central Texas. I was hitchhiking down the street in Lubbock one day When a big old Cadillac came my way Cadillac pulled over to the side of the street So I opened the door and I sat down in the seat Then I looked across the car and saw the baddest man I'd ever seen He said, where are you going, man? I said, I really don't know He said, I got a little place downtown I'd kind of like to show you So he took me to a little joint that I'd been passing by I'd always wanted to go in there, but I felt a little shy took me inside and now I've never been the same and I'll never forget the man and I'll never forget the name it was the stub boogie yeah the stub boogie I'm Jimmy Dale Gilmore in Lubbock the musicians didn't have the venues that we have in Austin the musician world was just almost totally underground when we were young Lubbock was dry The first venues we ever had were like no legal alcohol. And so if there was a place that had alcohol, it already was illegal. So being underage wasn't any more illegal than just even being there at all. So our first gigs were in these joints. The very first band that I ever played in was uh, Jesse Taylor and John Reed and Joe Ely and T.J. McFarlane. Jesse was a blues guitar player. He was living over in East Lubbock. Lubbock is very segregated, even now. And he was living over in the east side of town, and one day he was hitchhiking, and this big, huge black man stopped and picked him up. It was Stubb, Stubblefield. He had a barbecue joint, tiny little dive over there, and Jesse started hanging out with Stubb, and they just became close friends, and Stubb had the best jukebox in the world. It had... Howlin' Wolf and Bobby Blue Bland and, you know, Lightning Hop. It, it was truly wonderful. Ain't that good? See, we just been have a ball. I'm looking at that little girl way over yonder. Thanks, she pulled us all. Get up, girl. At some point, Jesse said, Stubb, could I bring a few of my friends over here and play some music? It was unusual, you know, for a white kid and a black man to become close friends. My name is Sharon Ely, and I was born in Lubbock, Texas, and then I migrated down to Austin with my husband, Joe Ely. Don Caldwell would come and play his horn at Stubbs Barbecue. Terry Allen started coming down there yeah. and playing, and Stevie Ray Vaughan, even Muddy Waters, and Tom T. Hall. Johnny Cash and all these people. Well, I'll never forget when uh, Linda Ronstad came and we took her over to Stubbs, and she went in Stubbs's kitchen in the back in her little white ballerina slippers <laughs> and walked through the most barbecue sauce-encrusted floor I've ever seen. Well, he was generous to everybody, but he was generous to musicians, and it provided a focal point. I mean, having the place for everybody to get together, and it was based around food 
it's based around the love of these people for each other and the and the kitchen i mean what sort of amounts to is the kitchen is mm-hmm. the place that everybody gets together stubs would go around to all the different honky-tonks where all of you guys were playing, and he would invite all the musicians over for Sunday dinner. And he would go back to his little place and cook like turkey and dressing, and he would sleep on top of his pool table. We'd find him asleep the next day when all the musicians would come over and they're sunglasses, you know, and Stubbs would actually have stayed up all night cooking turkey and dressing for all the musicians. He'd do that over and over again, just free, you know. He was always saying, I want to feed the world, you know. He had this deep, beautiful voice, but he was just exuded love. Big, huge guy. And he would get up and he'd say, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Stubbs and I'm a cook. <laughs> Being stub, first of all, he had zero business sense. No money. I don't know. You just have to meet him. We miss him so much. He just left a gigantic hole in our life. You know, so everybody tried to help him, and eventually we got him to make some barbecue sauce in the kitchen, and then we take it out and sell it for him. Here now to help us all the way from Austin, Texas, is C.B. Stubblefield, known as Stubbs. Oh, Stubbs! My husband, Joey Lee, was invited to go sing on David Letterman. And then they got Stubbs to come and cook barbecue. He prepared it on stage. And how, uh, how sir, did you uh, become interested in the, uh, the science, the art, the fun of barbecuing? I was born hungry, my dad said. We had to cook. <laughs> All of us had to learn how to cook. It was the stub boogie. Yeah, the stub boogie. It's the stub boogie. Yeah, the stub boogie. I never knew what I was getting into. It was the stub boogie. So we're sitting in there one night. There wasn't very much going on. Stub said, we need some music. I said, let me get on the phone. So we called up some friends, and before we knew it, the joint was packed every night, and the cops said, screw it. There ain't a chance we can stop this anyway, so we'll let it go on till the break of day. It's the Stub Boogie. Yeah, it's the Stub Boogie. It's the Stub Boogie. Hidden Kitchens, Texas. I'm your host, Willie Nelson. Phases and stages 
circles and cycles and scenes that we've all seen before. My name is B. Spears. I play bass with the Willie Nelson Band, started in 1968. When I was a little bitty kid, I cooked a, uh, an armadillo out in our fort. Hungry. I'd, I had accidentally shot a surveyor and I was hiding from the law. I was raised very poor and we had some little bandy chickens and uh, chicken scratch was like three cents a pound and then these sparrows would land and eat all our chicken feed. And my brothers told me I had to sit on the ground to shoot my dad's 12 gauge. And I didn't see the surveyors and I shot and the guy with the transit level screamed and, and my brother told me, he said, you killed him. I was a dead man at six. Yeah, I was going to the electric chair in my mind. So they sent me into exile, and I was out there for about two days eating armadillos. We were raised in between Helotus and Bandera. It's, it's nothing there. We used to cook lizards on sticks, yeah, and rattlesnake. I was hungry. Heck, I was nine years old before I knew that beans wasn't meat. My mother had Alzheimer's disease, and when it was first kicking in, Dad had a garden, and I was saying, wow, Dad, you sure got a beautiful garden. And he said, yeah, I've got uh, pole beans out there, and I've got uh, peppers and some kohlrabi, and my mother's going, corn? Tell them about the corn. I remember corn. And my dad just kind of rolled his eyes, and he'd say, yeah, we got some carrots out there and spinach. Corn, Sam. Tell them about the corn. And he'd kind of shake his head, and, yeah, we, we got some radishes and cucumbers. I remember corn. And he turned around and looked at her and he said, I bought the corn at the H-E-B. And he looked at me and said, there wasn't a corn plant out there. So now we get on the bus and I, I, I ask Mickey, you know, every year, do we remember corn? And if you can't remember corn, then you're off the bus. After carefully considering My name's Larry Mitchell, and I'm the chief executive for the American Corn Growers Association. Well, I was a fifth-generation farmer in Arlington, Texas. I raised cotton, corn, wheat, grain sorghum, oats, and hay. All of my grandparents farmed, all of my great-grandparents farmed, and when it came down to it, I was the last one. As a young farmer, I had survived the mid-80s, only to have the savings and loans crisis take me out of business. I thought I was just going in to sign some papers with my bank, and he opened up my folder and handed me a pencil. He says, you know, we're going under, and I need you to liquidate within 90 days. Tell me what you think you can get for your equipment. But for a farmer, farming is what they are. To not be able to pass on to the sixth generation the farm was a really hard to take. In fact, it's probably what helps drive what I do on a daily basis today, and that I want to make sure that the system changes. And I doubt my children or their grandchildren get back on the land, but I certainly want to provide that opportunity to as many young and beginning farmers as possible. This is Willie Nelson. We're doing Farm Aid 2006. We are Los Lonely Boys. I'm Jojo, Henry, and our other brother is Ringo. We've been a part of farming now for this is our fourth year. We're from San Angelo, Texas. Our family was grown into cotton. You know, our father used to pick cotton when he was five and six years old. I'm Enrique Garza. I'm the daddy. People ask me, you know, 
well, you must be pretty proud of your boys, you know. And I go like, well, actually I am, but I, but that's not the word. There's a bigger word. In Spanish, it's orgulloso. That's heavier than proud. Some kitchens are hidden by place, some by time, like the saga of the Chili Queens of San Antonio. I'm Isabel Sanchez. I was born in San Antonio, Texas. My grandmother's name was Teresa Cantu Rocha. She was a Chili Queen. She was around at that time. What I would hear from my mother, they had tables, they were outside, around the Mercado around the cathedral, and she lived downtown. So it was very convenient for her to set up someplace around there. I was a little boy in the 1930s, just before the Chile Queens were banished. I'm Felix D. Almaraz, Jr. I'm professor of history at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Saturday, my family would bring my brother and me to the marketplace. The women would bring their pots in their containers and uh, they would set up shop. They decorated their little boots. They would put ribbons on them or paper mache in oil cloths, red and white. And uh, they had their little lanterns or their farolitos. For a dime, you could get chili con carne, tamales, beans, coffee. They were entrepreneurs. They were business ladies, and they made enough money to take care of the family. An artist from the newspaper sketched a Chelly Queen in 1894. She's wearing a rebozo and smoking a cigarette. I'm Tom Shelton. I'm the photo archivist at the Institute of Texan Cultures Library, San Antonio. This is the description. The ever-attentive, always jolly Chili Queen. They are good fellows, these Chili Queens, and are able and willing to talk on any subject from love to law. They are bright, bewitching creatures and put themselves to much trouble to please their too often rowdy customers. Every class of people who come to this city visit the places and partake of the piquant edibles. The Chili Queens were romanticized in the press as being these exotic Spanish women, the sable hair and the fiery tempers. I'm Jeff Pilcher. I've written a book about food and the making of Mexican identity. Visitors who were just starting to take the railroad down to San Antonio in the 1880s that would talk about all they remember was the Alamo and the Chili Queens. And of course, the Chili Queens were their first introduction to that spicy, dangerous Mexican food. Various savory compounds swimming in fiery pepper, which biteth like a serpent. This is a compound of chopped meat and pulverized red pepper stewed until the meat has been thoroughly saturated with the pepper. They would set up their tables, you know, every afternoon and knock them down late at night. My name is Annie Madrid Salas. The ladies would be with their homemade braceros and comals. I don't know who named them the Chili Queens. Probably some gringo. <laughs> In 1893, for example, the Chili Queens became widely known because they had a chili booth at the Chicago World's Fair, the Columbian Exposition. But the uh, city fathers had just banned the Chili Queens from setting up their stands in Alamo Plaza. And so you could get a bowl of chili in Chicago, but you couldn't get a bowl of chili outside the Alamo. 
Alamo Plaza was uh, more for Caucasians and business people, politicians. Every parade in town had to pass in front of the Alamo. The Chili Queens were considered uh, an eyesore because their little setups were not, uh, they were not high tone. My name is Graciela Sanchez. Plaza del Zacate was the place where the Mexicano community in San Antonio used to come and it was a farmer's market and then as it got to dark the Chili Queens had their little table set up. Musicians like Lidia Mendoza and her family would be the walking troubadours. The Chili Queens went back and forth, moving from plaza to plaza. The struggle continued all the way up until the 1930s. That's when it was changed from being sort of a public nuisance to being a health hazard. Health department eventually uh, lowered the boom on them, you know. First uh, they made them start screened and covering up, and then like eventually they went into small... Uh, restaurants. I believe it was like around 1937 when they uh, finally shut them down. This is a picture of Juanita and Esperanza Garcia shown making tortillas. City Health Department ordered removal of chili queens in their stands, brought an end to a 200-year-old tradition. This is a picture of a woman in uh, World War II She's holding a chili pot, and the caption reads, Chili con Hitler, into the scrap metal piles which San Antonians are gathering to defeat the Axis. Saturday went a 125-year-old chili pot contributed by Ms. Luce Trevino. When they were here, we, uh, we didn't protect them. We, we didn't know that there would be bureaucrats who would come at them and try to get them either to reform or to change or to move out. And it seems that they moved them out. But I, I miss it. The Chili Queens, the music, the aromas. The plaza was where you met your friends and you exchanged news. That was life. It was just a coming together. I'm Carl Cornelius, and we're at Carl's Corner Truck Stop at Carl's Corner, Texas. It's just a little truck stop that was conceived out of a dream. Deep fried fuel, a biodiesel kitchen vision. Willie Nelson called me one time. Do you want to put one of your lanes in out there as biodiesel? And I said, well, do you believe in the damn stuff, Willie? He said, well, yeah. And I said, well, let's do the whole thing. And so we put the first truck stop in full biodiesel. I'm driving this truck on a mountain road, got a hot rod rig and a flying low. My eyes are filled with diesel smoke, these hairpin curves ain't no joke, diesel smoke. Dangerous curve. Should be obvious to everyone, we're running out of dinosaur wine. This is Kinky Friedman, I'm a compassionate redneck. I'm 61 years old, which is too young for Medicare and uh, too old for women to care. I'm a biodiesel rebel, now that's just what I am. This is our land of freedom, not bent lottens or sad dance. My name's Chris Powers, Houston Biodiesel. We get asked ten times a day, when's your next biodiesel class? Beginner's homebrew biodiesel class. You know, the kitchen way. 
because you can make it in a blender in your kitchen too. Now I wouldn't use that blender again for a margarita or anything, but if you have a sacrificial blender, want the recipe? Okay, so one liter of vegetable oil. Well, actually, you can make biodiesel nearly out of anything. Soybeans, or cotton seed, mustard seed, palm oil, Kentucky Fried Chicken. There was an incident in Colorado where a bear attacked a biodiesel truck because it smelled like French fries. And this is the downside of biodiesel. My name is Joe Nick Potoski. District F of Southwest Houston, uh, a lot of strip malls that became early ghost malls were reoccupied by ethnic groups. There's an Indian mall and not even a half block down, a Pakistani mall. I went recently to Hong Kong City Mall, they had an all-Asian grocery store that was just mind-boggling. This is the uh, Hong Kong market. I'm buying the live catfish. They would do it the way you want it, with skin on or skin off. I cook in the garage. We don't like the food smell. Kitchen's always outside uh, Vietnam. I'm Sandy Lee. I came here in 1980 from Vietnam. We had to leave. We tried eight times. Um, we went to jail seven times. We ended up here and we love it here because the diversity and the foods. In this area is the third largest concentration of Vietnamese residents in the whole uh, United States. My name is Lee Van. I just wrote the very first book on wine written in Vietnamese. Wine is something that you must know something about in order to be able to, uh, you know, to sit on the same table in the American society. My name is David Close, barbecue pit manufacturer here in Houston, Texas. This is what we call bling bling. It's a standard mobile pit, feeds about probably 600 people. 20 foot trailer, seven foot wide. It's got uh, 24 karat gold mags and handles. I had a friend of mine dip them, electroplate them in gold. It has a two by four foot sliding steak grill on the nose and fish frying burner for doing, you know, deep frying turkeys and peanut oil, boiling corn, frying catfish and all. It's got gas injection, 160,000 BTU for Lazy Man cooking. On top of the firebox is a one-inch solid granite Lazy Susan. Whole pots of coffee at the perfect temperature for keeping them warm. As you go around back, we've got an infrared grill that cooks at 2,000 degrees for nuking cowboy steak. Behind that, you have gold sinks. 24-inch, three LMB satellite dish. It's got a, a DVR recorder that holds 100 motion pictures, DVD players, satellite radio, satellite TV. This is solar powered as well as electric power, so I can run the lights, the TV, radio and all that off of the solar power. The lighting on the trailer will flash to the music. And we can even rig it where Jack Daniels and Coke comes out of the faucets. You don't have to do anything, you don't have to plan anything, you don't even have to have food. All I have to do is pull that pit up on a cul-de-sac and get out and light it. And people will start showing up with food, hay bales, people will party at the drop of a hat. Uh, the paint job on the trailer is a, a Ferrari Metal Flake Burgundy. Should last about 100 years. I could have had a Maserati or this barbecue pit. Now, what Texan would have picked the Maserati? None of them. This is forever. This is always going to be here. Maybe they'll find it hundreds of years from now and wonder what the hell this was, you know? I won't stop until I made everything in the world into a barbecue pit. I want one on the moon. I've talked to the administrator at NASA. I 
you know. Ceramic fiber finish with platinum coils inside with solar panels. Probably an oxygen fixed environment inside. When people land, I want them to see the world's first close interplanetary grill. That sings. I'll give them the rest of the money I make the rest of my life if they'll put one on the moon for me. That, I mean, that's a scratch on the planet that you were here. The rest of it's moot. Hidden Kitchens, Texas. You have 56 new messages. Hi, Kitchen Sisters. This is Tiffany Travis calling with NASA Johnson Space Center, Houston, Texas. Every week he cooks up a big batch of rutabagas. Her mom sold tamales out of a window in the garage in Fort Worth. Miko Giant St. Joseph's Day altar and a huge meal. With Pancake breakfast, political barbecues, fish fries, church suppers. And it pulls the entire neighborhood together. It's the food, but more than that, it's the fellowship. LaGrange, United Columbus, cooks over 6,000 chicken dinners. Community cooking across the great state of Texas. Downtown Seguin. Burning, Texas. Sunset Valley Farmer's Market. I'm Robin Wright Penn. And I'm Willie Nelson for Hidden Kitchens, Texas. And let me tell you what, everything is served right there off the plow disc on the back of the truck. Hidden Kitchens, Texas was produced by the Kitchen Sisters, Nikki Silva and Davia Nelson. Mixed by Jim McKeat in collaboration with KUT Austin and NPR. Thought I would tell you about my grandma and her green jello salad. Our associate producer is Laura Folger. Special thanks to Nathan Dalton, Kate Volkman, and Maria Walcott, Hawk Mendenhall, Stuart Vanderbilt, and the KUT team in Austin, KSTX in San Antonio, KERA in Dallas, and to all the callers to the Hidden Kitchens Texas Hotline. Okay, this is Phyllis Allen again. We have two funeral food ladies left in our community. Our score was composed and performed by the Austin Steel player Cindy Cash Dollar, who grew up on a raw milk dairy farm in Woodstock. H&H Car Wash and Coffee Shop in El Paso. There are a lot more stories in the book Hidden Kitchens, stories, recipes, and more from NPR's Kitchen Sisters. With three-layer coconut cake. Support for Hidden Kitchens comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, KUT Austin, and Humanities Texas. Wild Mustang great. For KUT and NPR, I'm Willie Nelson. When in doubt, cook.